guys, and welcome to episode number 81 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you for joining your host, Tierra and Jack, for another Q&A today. And before we get stuck into all the questions, we just wanted to remind you guys that if you do enjoy these episodes, please remember to repost them to your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Tierra, tag TBD. Also, if you are interested in any of our coaching services as well, please head over to our website, www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. We have an overview of all of our different coaching options there for a variation of lifestyle clients to comp prep. So without further ado, we'll get straight into these questions. And the first one says, why do people generally feel colder as they get deeper into prep? Boy, I feel like so many people could relate to this question, you know? Like, Jack, when you were going through prep, were you cold? Yep. (laughs) Yep, I was cold. Man, I just feel like it's true. Whenever you diet, you are just more susceptible to the cold. And, you know, you'll just reach for your sweater more often or put on your toque or warm fuzzy socks, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so this is very, very common. And so it's certainly not unusual to feel colder when you are going through a dieting phase. Now, I think there's two main reasons for why you might feel colder. One, a lot of people say, you know, oh, you just have less body fat on you, right? Like you're less insulated. Mm. Like that is true to an extent. Maybe if you're like comp lean or you are getting toward the end of your diet, but at the I think s- people are comparing themselves to like those walruses or seals that have <laughs> like a 30 centimeter layer of fat. Yeah. Or like, you know, a bear, it's like its job to like, you know, get a huge layer of fat so it can hibernate for the winter and survive. So yeah. Uh, so don't compare yourself to one of those creatures, <laughs> but that's the thing. So people say, Oh, you know, you just have less body fat on you. You're less insulated. So yes, this might be true. And it's certainly that's more of a correlation, not a cause. I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah. So Uh, That would certainly contribute to you feeling cold if, yes, you were at the end of comp prep or you're definitely getting leaner and you just, yeah, you don't have much body fat on you, so you aren't that insulated. But then how do you, you know, explain, well, someone's only just started dieting and they've still got a decent amount of body fat on them, but they're feeling cold as well, you know? So obviously they're insulated, but their body's still feeling cold. So the way to explain this is really... Right. When we think about how the body produces energy, right, we have our ATP system. So that's pretty much the energy currency system within the body. We're producing ATP and a byproduct of producing ATP is producing hydrogen ions, which need to be dissipated as heat. And interestingly, there's actually a few ways that you can dissipate heat from your body. So the most common one, which is the primary form of heat loss during exercise would be evaporation, right? But then you also have conduction. So that's when heat is transferred from one solid material to another solid material. So Jack being as hot as he is, right? Sitting on this wooden chair, he is pretty much transferring heat from his butt into the wooden chair, right? So you've got conduction there. And then you've also got convection. So that's heat transfer by the movement of a gas or a liquid across a surface. So imagine if you're really hot, right? And then you sit in front of a fan and you try to cool down the movement of that air across that skin. That is also going to help you dissipate some heat. So those are a few ways that the body actually dissipates heat from the body. 
So to come back and answer the main question, the reason why we are more cold or susceptible to feeling cold in an energy energy deficit is purely because we're adapting and we don't want to expend as much energy in the form of heat and therefore we're cold. So it's to put it like that, it's not actually that complicated. But of course, if we actually go down into the the science of it, like Tierra did, <laughs> it, it involved ATP and the hydrogen atoms as well. Yeah, exactly. So you can think about how when you're in a dieting phase, you're metabolically adapting, right? You're getting a hell of a lot more efficient at conserving your energy. So your body's, it doesn't want to waste it, right? And a few other things to remember is that, you know, your body's core temperature, it's heavily regulated by your hypothalamus, right? There's this area of the hypothalamus called the pre-optic anterior hypothalamus, and that is actually responsible for regulating your core body temperature. And core body temperature in degrees Celsius ranges anywhere between 37 to 37.8. If your core body temperature goes below 35, degrees Celsius, that's considered hypothermia. And then if it goes above 41 degrees Celsius, that's considered hyperthermia. Obviously going anywhere, you know, beyond where your homeostatic set point is around that 37 degrees Celsius, you're really just asking for trouble. And the reason why your blood temperature would be changing is because of the amount of energy that you are producing in your body and the amount of hydrogen atoms that you are releasing. So if like, let's say that, you know, you go for a run, right? You're burning a bunch of energy, burning through a bunch of ATP, producing a bunch of hydrogen that is acutely going to raise your core blood temperature. That's going to go up to the hypothalamus and it's going to signal these different things in the body. So for example, it's going to signal for your blood vessels to vasodilate, particularly in your extremities. So like your arms, right? And your legs. So vasodilation, that's going to help with increased blood flow to that area so that it can be dissipated as heat. Like we said, you know, through evaporation or conduction or convection. So that's when you're really, really hot. So you can get rid of that heat. But then if you are trying to conserve energy, right? What your body's actually going to do is it's actually going to cause vasoconstriction of blood vessels, particularly in your extremities. That's why, you know, your hands will get really cold. The tips of your toes will get really cold. Your legs will get cold. Your arms will get cold. That's because there's vasoconstriction going on there so that you can redirect that blood to your core, which is the most important thing, right? You're trying to keep your vital organs warm and alive and at that homeostatic range of 37 degrees Celsius. So a lot of blood is going to be redirected to your core because you are colder. Uh, and this actually, I think this actually ties in as well with why perhaps you have to go pee more often during prep. So all of these things are interlinked, but you'll find that when you're dieting, sometimes you just have to go pee like a hell of a lot more frequently compared to when you aren't dieting or even if you're not dieting, right? Just when you're cold, you generally have to go pee more often. And again, the reason for that is because blood volume is redirected to your core. It's in a smaller area and the human body only has around five liters of blood. So if you compile all that blood into a smaller area, that's going to put a lot more pressure on your kidneys to increase their rate of filtration. And because they're filtering at a faster rate, they're going to, you know, have to reduce that blood volume in your core. So then you're going to urinate 
more to get to lower your total blood volume uh, acutely. So that's another reason why when you're cold or you're dieting, you might have to go pee more often. I think we can all relate to this. You know, when you go swimming in a really cold ocean or a pool or you're scuba diving or something, it's like you just have to immediately pee, right? So <laughs> I think those um, those are just a few reasons. But yeah, it's 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 a combination of things, but it's not just body fat. I would say it, it really is your body just trying to conserve energy, so um doesn't want to waste it. But just lastly, you know, something else that the body will do that's really smart when it is in a very cold environment. So like imagine if you are stuck out in the snow, you know, or like you've just jumped into an ice bath or something, right? you'll actually notice that you will start to shake and the body will actually cause involuntary muscular contractions and it will cause you to start shivering. And the reason for that is because when you're doing those involuntary muscular contractions, right, that is producing energy and that is uh, producing hydrogen ion as a byproduct. And that is in a sense, you know, creating heat within the body. So it's trying to keep you warm. So the body's really freaking smart, you know, when, um, when it's trying to keep you alive and keep you warm. So it can do all of these little things, but Again, on the flip side, you can get really, really, really cold if you're like stuck out in the Arctic and you got no socks or something and uh, you can have vasoconstriction obviously to such an extreme that you can actually end up with frostbite, you know? That's when your fingers and your toes, they turn purple and uh, man, you, you can't, you don't have your fingers and your toes anymore. So hopefully you don't diet to that extent. You know, I would wish that upon no one because man, fingers and toes, they are freaking important. Okay. So, um, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's pretty much all for me though. <laughs> yeah. Something else we have to remember that people who do have a faster metabolism, they are obviously burning through more energy, which is released as heat. So that's why you see people who do eat more they usually also are more hot as well mm -hmm. they're and, radiating <laughs> yep and that's that's just another interesting thing to consider which is part of the puzzle and it does make sense even people with high metabolisms when they diet they still get colder because they're, they're in an energy deficit now mm -hmm. absolutely but you can certainly relate to that you know like eating so much food man like you're just burning through a hell of a lot of energy you're just like you're hot all the time you know like hot to touch like <laughs> but um i guess i guess it keeps you warm in the um it keeps you warm in the winter but you only have to like sleep with a thin blanket you know not like me with like four mm. <laughs> but at the same time like maybe it will kind of be nice in summer because if you're dieting in summer and the Australian summer, man, right? It gets freaking hot here. I remember one day we were in the gym. It was like 41 or 43 degrees. It was so stupidly hot. The barbells were hot to touch. Yeah. So like maybe it'll be nice to, uh, for, for you to diet through the summer. So maybe you feel a little bit cooler. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> All right, guys. So I'm um, moving on to this next one. I love this question. So it says the best tips for overcoming self-doubt and fear of injuring yourself, especially when you're lifting heavy weights. So yeah, Tara and I, it definitely res resonates with both of us. And I still, well, I think everyone who trains hard, they get nervous, especially before legs. And there's always that fear associated with like a heavy squat or heavy deadlift. Mm -hmm. And it's not always about injuring yourself. Although 
I've definitely felt that before. And it's normally just because it's difficult and we're doing difficult things are tough Mm -hmm. and they cause a bit of anxiety. If it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. (laughs) But something that really helps me, like say if I, especially regarding like squats and RDLs, um, I I start with those movements at the beginning of my workout and... I find that having a really nice warm-up um, prepares me mentally, but also physically as well. Because like, let's say something is a little bit sore, it might be some previous DOMS or something you, sometimes when you go into a session, it's just not feeling right and you're not in your groove. Then warming up, like for example, we actually had a question here about our warm-ups as well. But for, for my leg days, I usually do a, basically I do trigger pointing and on our episode with Scott, the physio, I would recommend listening to that. But he basically said that um, a lot of trigger pointing is just basically going to be neurological. Like it's mm-hmm. it's not going to drastically change anything. And that's exactly why I do it because it, I feel like it prepares me for the session. So if I like roll the ball against my lower back, it feels good. I feel like it's in a better position to do the workout. And I basically warm up my glute meat as well and my adductors and just ensure that everything's firing and do a good warm up with the 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 load as well working up to my working weight and i find that uh, along with some good music it really puts me in the mood and ultimately you're not it's not like you're going from okay i I lifted 100 kilos last week i'm going to go straight 200 yes you should be concerned if you're going to do that because (laughs) you probably are going to injure yourself but if you've if you're familiar with the weight that you've used, you've done it the last week, or you've going going up by a respectable amount, like two and a half kilos, then you put the work in, you know what your body's capable of. And sure, some fear of injury is completely normal because it just means you're pushing yourself. Mm-hmm. But you just got to remember that you put the work in to be there. Yeah. And I would like something that I would never go into an exercise doing is actually expecting to get injured. Because I think that man, like that's just asking for trouble. So I would never go into a squat or never go into a deadlift with any perceived idea that I was going to feel any sort of pain or that I was going to hurt myself, right? Like psychology is so important in that sense. So like never go into an exercise expecting to get hurt or expecting it to feel, feel really tough, you know? Almost try to psychologically trick yourself that, I can do this. Like, it's not even tricking yourself, man. You can do this. You are capable, right? And like Jack said, you're not going from 100 to 200 kilograms, right? You might be just aiming for an extra one or two reps. You might just be lifting an extra 1.25 or 2.5 kilograms, something small, right? But at the same time, you shouldn't necessarily be scared of failure per se, because we highly don't recommend, you know, on these big compound movements, training to failure, right? Like you, you shouldn't be training to failure. You should always have at least one rep left in the tank with all those reps with good form. But obviously there are some exceptions to that, you know, like if you are going for a deadlift PB, right? You're trying to lift the max weight possible for one rep, right? And then you don't get it, right? Then you failed, but you tried your best. Or an right? isolation movement. Yeah, isolation movements. You know, if you go to failure on a leg extension or a bicep curl, you know, you're going to be okay the next day. You know, it's not very likely that you are going to actually injure yourself on one of those exercises. And it's not nearly as taxing on your central nervous system as something like failing in a deadlift or failing in a squat. Yeah, I think we've given some good tips there. Like, 
probably our number one would be avoid going to technical failure and of course muscular failure on those lifts such as squats rdls deadlifts even things like uh, bench press potentially Mm -hmm. and or i think a better way of saying this is the closer you do go to failure i think they're the higher risk there is of injuring yourself Mm -hmm. and it just comes with that territory really but I think mindset is also the other side of the coin where if you're familiar with that weight and you haven't done a drastic increase, you've done it before, you've done something similar to it, you've warmed up well, you feel good, you're listening to some good music, then there's no reason why you can't do it. It's within your normal territory. So just um, it's normal to have some doubts sometimes and just got to do it really. Mm -hmm. You just got to (laughs) believe. You know, yeah, just have self-confidence. Like something I do for every single one of my bench presses, every single time, you know, Jack helps me unrack the bar. And before I even do my first rep and I'm holding that bar and that weight above my chest, I'll just say the word light. I just, I say out loud light. And that's just telling myself that this is a light weight. I've got this, you know, fully capable, lightweight, baby, no kidding. But it really helps me, you know, because psychology and the words that we use and the things that we tell ourselves, you know, it majorly plays a role in our performance. So if I was to pick up that exact same bar and say, oh man, this is really heavy. I don't know if I can push this up, right? I'm a lot less likely to push it up if I'm having those sort of thoughts rather than just going lightweight, baby, you know? (laughs) I don't know. I think I would psych myself out if I said lightweight like that. No, I just, I'm I'm self-confident with it. I I know I can do it. What if you say, this is heavy, but I got this? No, light. (laughs) (laughs) Light all the way. Uh, But yeah, you know. A 50 kilo bench for you isn't light. Hey man, it's all relative. You tell me, how how many other girls my size No, I say a 50 kilo bench for you isn't light. No, uh, it is. What, wait, what do you mean? It's not light, it's heavy. I mean, it's, It a, is it's light. No, it's light. Oh, okay. Yes, that's what I'm saying. That's why I can do it, because it's light, <laughs> and I'm strong. <laughs> I got four sets of ten on that thing. Um, but yeah, so, yeah, it's really about psychology, and just, yeah, don't go into an exercise thinking that you are going to get hurt, going to get injured, it's going to be painful, it's going to be hell. Don't freaking psych yourself out, you know? Don't put more energy into psyching yourself out and becoming anxious than the actual energy that you just put into doing the lift, you know? Pretty Mm. much don't overthink it, okay? Yeah, mindset certainly is the most important aspect there. And yeah, just um, good luck in the next session. Yeah, I hope you get many PRs with uh, impeccable form. (laughs) Awesome. So we'll move on to the next question. And this one says... What is citric acid and acidic regulators used in some products? So I think something to clarify first with this question is that a citric acid is a type of acidity regulator, you know? So citric acid is naturally occurring in a lot of different fruits. So you've think, got things like limes and lemons and grapefruits and oranges. So you have citric acid in there. and citric acid and acidity regulators, they kind of speak for themselves. So they regulate the acidity of a food product, right? And that is heavily involved in actually preserving that food product and ensuring that that food product doesn't oxidize so that, you know, we can consume it and it's safe to consume and it tastes good too. Yeah. So on the ingredients list of many of your food products, you will see like acidity regulators and then you'll see some numbers afterwards 
And some common ones are like citric acid or ascorbic acid, which is vitamin C as well. And basically, as Tierra said, they're, they're in certain products to extend the shelf life. And when we think about a pH scale, when the pH is neutral, that's going to promote more bacterial growth than when there is an acidic pH. So adding those products such as acidity regulators will lower the pH and prevent bacterial growth. Yeah, so a pH scale, it ranges from one being the most acidic, which is close to something like hydrochloric acid, right? Up to 14, which is the most basic you can get, right? So like basic bitch. <laughs> but um, so something that like very basic foods, basic foods would be your basic foods, right? Things like your vegetables and your whole grains, right? You nail the basics, man. Um, but actually, interestingly, so, you know, in that neutral zone, uh, it's between like 6.5 to 7 pH, right? That's actually where you're likely to experience the most bacterial growth. And interestingly, the pH of fresh milk is between 6.6 to 6.8, right? So it's right in that perfect zone for those microbes to get in and freaking spoil your milk. So that's why a product like, you know, fresh milk, it has a pretty short shelf life, right? And if you mess around with it and change, you know, you keep all it in the- All milk is pasteurized though. Yeah, all milk is pasteurized, but like if you, you know, forget your milk in the car, right? And it gets really hot, then you bring it in, like it's a lot more likely the pH of that milk is going to change and uh, it's going to spoil and it's going to go off. So yeah, pretty much acidity regulators, they just help by preserving your food, giving it a longer shelf life, preventing oxidation. So they're a good thing, you know, don't don't be scared of acidity regulators. So, mm. And they're naturally occurring, like we said, in a lot of different foods. So that's actually why, um, like what I used to do as a kid or my parents taught me to do is that if I would chop up an apple, right, but I didn't want the apple to oxidize and actually turn brown, what you would do is you would actually squeeze some lemon over your apple. And because lemon has citric acid in it, which helps to regulate the acidity, my apple wouldn't turn brown. And it would taste a little bit sour from the lemon. So it was delicious. Yeah, but sour apple, that's right. The best, the healthiest kind you can get. Um, But yeah, so there's just those little things like that. Green apples are more sour. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and like, you know, you can do that. So you can obviously do that with fruit. So that's a little trick. Like if you have a fruit platter, right? And you chop up a bunch of fresh fruit, but you don't want, you know, your apples going brown on the platter, you know, squeeze some lemon or some lime juice over there. Um, or if you have, if you're taking a big salad to work and you don't want anything to oxidize, right? Well, some oxidation is going to happen. Like Best way to prevent it is honestly just put your food into a sealed tight container so the least amount of or oxygen just a vacuum can, can it, get. Va- vacuum bag. <laughs> yes, vacuum bag your salad, bro. <laughs> um, or you could just squeeze some lemon on it. But hey, you know, whatever works for you, man. <laughs> awesome. So this next question says, some tips on getting through workouts in times of low energy. For example, on prep or after work. Oh boy. Wow. So, uh, we've all been there and you know, we've all been like, really need to get this workout done. The worst thing is when you combine both those things together. (laughs) Yeah. When you're on prep and you're after work, I would argue that unless your job is absolutely shite, like you just, you're not enjoying your job. It'd be even worse if you are a student on placement and you're in prep and you're going to the gym after placement, after being yelled at all the adults. (laughs) But to be, to be fair though, credit to everyone who 
preps and works a nine to five job like that's that's Dude, tough the grind man it's insane it's amazing i only really started to appreciate it when i was you know i was working at uq sport in the gym and uh i was just a normal uni student and like you'd see people come in at that like 5 five thirty p.m mark and you talk to them they'd be like yeah you know i've been at work all day and then they'd smash out a two-hour workout it wasn't until then i was on placement and i was working that like 7 30 till 5 p.m and then i was come to the gym and i'm like man how do these people do this every day i am freaking wrecked you yeah. know like i have so much respect for people who work nine to fives and then hit the gym after with a massive smile on their face but or just hit the gym you know like i understand in this situation you're low energy so i don't know how much energy you have to smile but anyway <laughs> let's give this guy some tips <laughs> so i think ultimately it's going to come down to grit and the hashtag grind (laughs) (laughs) but yeah like to be honest that's what it's going to come down to and there are some things that will help you of course so for example if we can look at it nutritionally then what what both chair and i did is we kind of had lunch and then we also had a meal after lunch as Mm -hmm. well prior to training and otherwise you could you could not have eaten for like five hours and then you have to go train so Putting a meal closer to the workout will certainly help you Mm -hmm. in that aspect, especially if you're in a calorie deficit. Yeah, most certainly. Give yourself a good amount of carbs, you know, and a good hit of sweet caffeine. (laughs) Yeah, and that was the next point is if if caffeine doesn't bother you that much that late, then I would definitely partake in some caffeinated beverage. (laughs) A a good bevy. (laughs) A nice hot pre-workout, if you know what I mean. (laughs) And... But yeah, ultimately, it's going to come down to achieving your goals. And that's where having a plan in front of you will really help. Because if you go into the gym and let's say you have a leg day and it's a Friday evening and you've got squats and then you've got, I don't know, hack squats, some RDLs or deadlift, and you're going, to feel, you're going to probably load up 100 kilos on the bar and it's going to feel heavy for squats, even though you know you've got three plates. Mm-hmm. So that's where looking at your program and just doing it like it's gonna it's gonna feel heavy regardless and it's more about you have the physical capacity to do it and it's probably gonna suck but you just got to do it yeah you've done it before you can do it again so yeah there's a few things there yeah obviously nutritionally you know um but even then like maybe perhaps if you have like really heavy work days like workout days right try to schedule them on perhaps your lighter work days Mm. uh so for example if you've got like a really really heavy leg day maybe you could do that on like a sunday afternoon where you got to sleep in that sunday morning chill out with the family you know like eat some good food and then you can take monday as a rest day to recover from your leg day so try to strategically program in that sense but obviously you fully understand if you're training anywhere between four to six times per week obviously that's going to fall on your work days so yeah it's just a matter of getting it done but again if you want to get things done quickly too something i've really noticed in the gym like it's it's not a worry for me because i like i'm i'm very fortunate that with our type of lifestyle we're not rushed in the gym you know we're not confined to just a 60 minute period or something uh but you know your phone can be very distracting you know and you can actually you can get you know carried away with being on instagram for five minutes between sets so sometimes if you just want to smash it out like sometimes not even being on your phone can actually really help if you have a separate phone that would just be literally just for music or just um yeah so that you just use like an ipod or something if you wanted to listen to your own music or 
hopefully your gym plays good music. You could just listen to their music, uh, things like that. So yeah, I find that being on my phone and being on apps can be a huge distraction. Uh, or otherwise, like when it comes to rest periods, we we certainly don't advocate for like, okay, 30 seconds rest, 60 seconds rest, right? And then you have to go again. We're huge advocates of going when you're ready. But if you know that you generally are ready after about eh, maybe two minutes between sets, but you're giving yourself five minutes because mm. you're on your phone, maybe do set a timer. And it's not a strict timer. It's just a timer to remind you that like, hey dude, it's been two minutes. You know, you could probably think about going again soon. Um, and another thing you could consider is toward the end of your workout, you could consider doing some supersets, but with exercise, like with exercise and with muscle groups that aren't interfering with each other at all. So like you calves could do some, arms. yeah, calves and ab- abs and arms, <laughs> abs and arms. Or I think, yeah. So definitely things like arms, you know, you've got calves, raises, abs, yeah. Hip abductions, these little movements that you'll do at the end, right. To just, you're generally working in a higher rep range. It doesn't take as long to recover. You can superset some of those things, you know, so mm. it'd be good. Yeah. The only thing I'll mention else is if you doing high days, you can schedule the high days on days when you're busy at work mm-hmm. or busier. So for example, we usually do two or three high days back to back. So that could look like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday or something like that. Mm-hmm. And definitely from our experience, like having that on a more difficult day is kind of your like saving grace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of things to take into account too. Yeah. So just, yeah. I, I wish you all the best. And, um, I know it's, it's tough, you know, sometimes when you're low energy, you've had a big ass day and then you've got to go to the gym, even though you freaking love the gym, right? Like you are just tired and you really do wish that you could be there when you're fresh, you know, and mm. you're well fed, but it doesn't always happen. You know, sometimes yeah, actually the other option might even be converting to a morning session mm. and if that's feasible. Yeah. Yeah. Like personally, if I had to do train, in the um, either before or after work, if I was in that situation, then I might even train in the morning. Yeah, I would as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So take those things into consideration. Okay. So we'll move on to another one. So this question says tips on eating more fiber when you're on low calories. Boy, I feel like so many people do run into this issue, right? Yeah, for sure. And it definitely is a conundrum sometimes because you're eating less food. And potentially you're eating less food, such as whole grains, um, especially if your carbohydrates are low and therefore you're consuming less fiber. So the first thing I would do if someone approached me in this case is kind of look at their current food composition and do a fairly detailed dietary recall. So for example, if someone is on a low amount of food, let's say a female is on 1,200 calories and the carbohydrates that they are eating are things such as white pasta or white rice, which have low fiber contents compared to their whole grain counterparts, brown rice or brown pasta, then that's an easy switch you can do that or up your fiber quite significantly. Also, we got to remember that things such as fruits and vegetables, a lot of those are very low in energy and you can consume a lot of them for a large amount of fiber with very little calories. Mm -hmm. So if, if you have 200 calories to play with, you can get a lot of fiber, like probably even half your fiber targets with that amount. Bruh, preaching to the choir. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's not that, I wouldn't even say it's difficult. It's just about being wise in your food selections. And if you're on, the reality is if you're on lower food, 
you might just have to consume more whole grain and fresh food and kind of sacrifice things like the chocolate bar or exactly so that's the thing guys you know the lower your energy intake becomes the even more important you know it is to be consuming predominantly almost everything from your diet from a wholesome nutritious source because if you're consuming less energy right that means that you have less food sources available to actually meet your micronutrient requirements right to actually ensure that you are in optimal health and it consuming enough nutrition. So yeah, the lower someone's calories get, the even more emphasis I put on, okay, whole food diet, whole food diet. But obviously the higher someone's calories are, then yes, once you meet your nutritional bases and you know, your non-negotiables for fruits, vegetables, whole grains, you know, all your micronutrients like calcium, iron, all of those things, right? If you've got calories left to play over with, then yes, you consume can consume some slightly more processed foods that might be more refined and might not have as much fiber in them or not as much micronutrition in them. But gosh, we just have to think, okay, like if you are on low calories, okay, don't sacrifice the feeling of chronically feeling good, right? For a very acute feeling of feeling good. So what I'm talking about here is like, don't use a quarter of your total daily energy on just eating a chocolate bar or just having a bowl of ice cream, just because, you know, it'll make you feel acutely good in the moment. It will taste good, right? but it's going to be gone within a few minutes and then the hours to come, right? You're not going to feel nearly as satiated. You're probably still going to be hungry. You might even be craving more food compared to actually sitting down to a plate full of, you know, uh, green vegetables and a few baked potatoes and a nice steak or something, right? That could be a similar amount of energy. Some hot sauce maybe. Yeah. And some Nando's hot sauce, of course. But, uh, you know, sitting down to something that would be incredibly micronutrient dense, right? A very similar amount of energy, but it's just going to help you help satiate you more. It's going to nourish you so much more from a macronutrient and a micronutrient point of view, right? Okay. So don't sacrifice like chronically feeling good for just an acute feeling of feeling good. I just we really, really need to get that across. So yeah, the lower your calories are, I'm just such a huge advocate for, man, get it from wholesome, nutritious foods because you're, you want to feel your best in this circumstance because dieting's tough, you know, like Mm. it's really hard. So make it as easy as possible, you know, diet smart, not hard. (laughs) Especially if hunger is an issue, then the wholesome foods are going to fill you up more than the mm-hmm. the lower volume foods anyway. Yeah. So and interestingly, the main component that's really helping you feel satiated from those wholesome foods, voila, is the fiber and and the protein, but mainly the fiber. Mm. And yeah, the the other thing about fiber as well that I think is quite easy to forget, especially especially in Australia, is that we we count fiber as part of our carbohydrate intake. So let's say if you're having I don't know, again, ice cream, we'll use an example or something similar with a lot of sugar, then there's going to be very little fiber. So you're going to, all of those carbohydrates, you're going to be consuming are four calories per gram. Mm-hmm. But if you consume, let's say 50 grams of carbohydrates through salad or through whole grain carbohydrates, let, I don't know how many, let's say 10 grams of fiber is in there. Mm-hmm. That's, that's about, if that wasn't fiber, it would be 40 calories, but it mm-hmm. might only be 20 or 15 calories due to the fiber aspect. Yeah, exactly. that's something to consider as well. Yeah, so taking advantage of the thermic effect of food there too. Mm. So, 
And you know, something I actually just thought of as well is, you know, it's not just sources of fiber that come from vegetables and whole grains, right? But you can actually get increased fiber intake from actually manipulating your dietary fat sources. So for example, if you're having something like a salad, right, uh, at lunchtime or at dinner, and you're used to putting olive oil on that salad, for the same amount of grams of fat, you could potentially swap out the olive oil for something like, you know, some walnuts, right, or some mixed nuts or some avocado. You know, if you're having a bowl of oats in the morning alongside some egg whites and you're putting some cheese on your eggs, right? Maybe you could just have the egg whites and uh, just put some spices on there. And then instead of the cheese, again, you could put some chia seeds or some flax seeds in your oats or, you know, some more nuts. So you can also manipulate your dietary fat sources like that or, you know, I'm not saying olive oil or cheese are bad in any sense. I eat those foods every day. I freaking love them. But like just manipulating these things so that you get a few more grams of fiber in your diet, especially if you are on a pretty low calorie budget. So you can always consider things like that or like, hey, you know, if uh, if you love olive oil, you can always consider eating real olives too. Gosh, I just think... and. With the fiber recommendations, they're not that high. You know, they're not that hard to achieve. For females, it's around 25 grams per day. For males, it's around 30 grams per day. So, you know, given that, like if you are a female approaching the pointy end of your comp prep, you're on pretty low carbs, like 150 grams per day, you know, 25 grams of fiber from those carbohydrates, right? That just means that one sixth of the total carbohydrates you're consuming are coming from fiber, which I really think should be achievable. You know, if you are predominantly getting your carbohydrate sources from fruits and vegetables and things like oats, you know, some wholemeal flour, we can't forget about those super high fiber foods like cans of beans and lentils and chickpeas, man get on that, right? It's pretty low carb, it's really high fiber, and it's pretty damn high in protein too, very low in fat. So I, I even have someone, you know, I was doing a dietary recall with someone uh, a few days ago and they were eating cans of corn. <laughs> Imagine the fiber in a can of <laughs> corn <laughs> through the roof. Um, but yeah, I just think, you know, that's why it really pays off to work with a dietitian, you know, so you can really get nitty gritty with your diet and really see, okay, how can we fine tune this to really ensure that you are consuming enough fiber during the day? Yeah, 100%. And especially... In addition to those foods that Tierra said, like pretty much any vegetable mm-hmm. and mainly vegetables are going to be very high in fiber and especially things like your salad vegetables and anything non-starchy really, just mm-hmm. because if you consume star- starchy vegetables still have fiber, but they're not, qu- you don't get quite as much bang for your buck in terms yeah. of the calorie to fiber ratio. They got more starch, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. And just looking at as well, if you're consuming fruit, you know, going for those lower energy dense fruits. So things like very high raspberries, anything that you can actually like see the seed, like raspberries, strawberries, strawberries are so low in carbs and pretty damn, I swear those things are like close to hundred percent fiber. Like they're, they're really high in fiber, but so, you know, look at these different types of fruits, you know, or have things like, have things like melon, you know, instead of things like banana, right? Not saying 
any type of fruit is bad. We're purely just talking about the ratio of energy to fiber here. Okay, so yeah, it really pays off. If you're in this position, you know, have a consultation with a dietitian and, you know, do a detailed dietary recall and really come up with some strategies for how you can meet your minimum fiber targets, right? But you can still consume foods that you enjoy, foods that make you feel satiated, foods that help with your exercise performance, overall just make you feel your best. So I just, I really think unless you're consuming less than like 25 grams of carbs per day, then Mm. you should certainly be able to achieve 25 grams of fiber in your diet. Yeah. Cool. All right, guys. So that's pretty much the last question we'll cover for today. But as always, what we finish on is one thing that we learned this week. So Jack, what did you learn this week? So I recently listened to an episode of the Revive Stronger podcast with Jackson Pios. And one of the segments on that episode was talking about alcohol consumption. And like Tierra and I both knew, of course, that alcohol was not good, mm-hmm. not favorable for being an athlete, a physique athlete. It, it just doesn't have good effects on muscle protein synthesis. But to be honest, even we were surprised at how detrimental, once actually put into numbers, the effects of alcohol really are on muscle growth. And there was a comparison that Jackson referenced that I think it was Menno Henselman who who did a study and basically having a few standard drinks is similar to the detrimental effects on muscle protein synthesis as being in a energy deficit mm-hmm. combined with a low protein intake. Yeah, and I think the energy deficit was like 40% below maintenance, so a pretty damn large energy deficit, right? Mm, so... Just imagine that though, like being in a energy deficit by that amount combined with a low protein diet. And you can mimic that just by a few standard drinks. Like that's, that's not good. Oh, it's crazy. And man, like that's, that's what I learned this week as well. You know, those stats that Jackson was talking about nuts. So they did this one study where uh, they had participants just consume a standard, pretty well-balanced meal. And they just had one standard drink, right? So 10 grams of alcohol just that one standard drink reduced muscle protein synthesis from that meal across the next four hours by 30%. Like that is insane, right? That is nuts. And, uh, you know, he was also talking about how, you know, acute but chronic um, alcohol consumption majorly decreases your testosterone as well. So, and as we know, testosterone is one of the main anabolic, you know, signaling hormones for actually building more muscle mass and gosh the influence actually has on cortisol too they found that you know consuming alcohol it can increase your cortisol levels by 152 percent which is just freaking nuts okay so yeah highly recommend that everyone go over to the revive stronger podcast and listen to that episode with jackson piasso really really good episode and uh I just, I I really, really like the way that he came across and, you know, his stance on the matter, because I think it is very, very important. And uh, he really just made a really good argument for there's these people who are trying to, you know, do these little one percenters, you know, they're trying to take intra-workout carbohydrates, you know, or they're taking these special supplements or they're trying to train twice a day or doing these fancy training protocols where they're periodizing everything. But then, you know, they're going out every single weekend and they're drinking, you know, so the two just don't go together. Right. And he's, he made the point that like, man, if you really care about your training and your performance and your progression, right? Like, just not drinking, that's going to have such a significant effect on you progressing, right? Compared to all these little nuanced things mm. that you're doing instead. So 
yeah, just uh, look at it from that view. But yeah, definitely go check out that podcast. Really good. Awesome, guys. So thanks for listening to this episode. And if you enjoyed it, please remember to repost it on your Instagram story. Tag myself, tag Tierra, tag TBD. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye, guys. Bye.